What's up, everybody? This is Pastor James. Welcome back to our midweek Bible study. Today we are starting chapter 2, and this is a shorter chapter, so it should be possible for us to get it all in today. So let's get started just to make sure we can cover as much ground as possible. Let's read together 2 Corinthians, and we're just going to read verses 1 through 4 to begin with, and we'll talk about it and we'll move forward from there. So I decided that I would not bring you grief with another painful visit. For if I cause you grief, who will make me glad? Certainly not someone that I have grieved. That is why I wrote to you as I did, so that when I do come, I won't be grieved by the very ones who ought to give me the greatest joy. Surely you all know that my joy comes from being joyful. I wrote that letter in great anguish with a troubled heart and many tears, and I didn't want to grieve you, but I wanted to let you know how much love I have for you. Alrighty. Now, this is obviously a continuation of chapter 1. Uh, Paul is still talking about why he didn't come back and visit on his return uh, from Macedonia, as he said he would. Now, Paul does not want animosity between him and the Christians in Corinth, and he very much wants their relationship to be pleasant with the ability to lift one another up. And he is purposefully choosing not to grieve these people because he wants to be a blessing to them, and at the same time, he wants them to be a blessing to himself. And I think that's really important, you know, as Christians that we understand that we are supposed to be a blessing to one another. Like, we're supposed to lift other people up, and at the same time, we need to be lifted up by other people. And Paul acknowledges the fact that he needs this himself. Now, Paul's desire is that these Christians in Corinth would put to rest all the division and everything that's going on, and that when he returned, that all would just be well and good. And Paul even says that visiting with Christians... It should bring him the greatest joy. They are the ones who should be bringing him the greatest joy. And Paul even says this in verse 3 when he writes, Surely you all know that my joy comes from your being joyful. <coughs> Excuse me. So, the letter that Paul wrote was not written with joy or gladness in confrontation. And I think that's important to understand too. Paul did not write this letter... Uh, with the heart or mindset, ha, I'm going to tell them what I think, or I'm going to show them, or I'm going to make them feel bad for what they did. You know, there are some people who revel in confrontation, and you need to be very weary of people like that. True believers are ones who, it's not that they are not able to fight or that they are scared of fighting, but really they avoid the confrontation and the fighting because most of the time, that does not lead to productive um, circumstances or productive outcomes. So Paul wrote the letter in anguish. It was painful. It made him cry. Like he said, I wrote that letter with many tears. And it was not called the painful or tearful letter because Paul made the Corinthians cry. Rather, it was called that because it broke Paul's heart to write the letter and to do it. So his greatest desire is to communicate the love that he has for these people. That's what he's trying to do. That's why he didn't go visit. And that's why he wrote the letter instead. And that's why he has not rebuked them harshly at the moment. Okay? 
Well, let's uh, jump into the middle part of this chapter. Let's read verses 5 through 13 together, and we'll talk about it as uh, Paul talks about forgiveness. So, in verse 5 it says, I am not overstating it when I say that the man who caused all the trouble hurt all of you more than he hurt me. Most of you opposed him, and that was punishment enough. Now, however, it is time to forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, he may be overcome by discouragement. So I urge you now to reaffirm your love for him. I wrote to you as I did to test you and see if you would fully comply with my instructions. When you forgive this man, I forgive him too. And when I forgive whatever needs to be forgiven, I do so with Christ's authority for your benefit, so that Satan will not outsmart us, for we are familiar with his evil schemes. When I came to the city of Troas to preach the good news of Christ, the Lord opened a door of opportunity for me, but I had no peace of mind because my dear brother Titus hadn't yet arrived with a report from you. So I said goodbye and went on to Macedonia to find him. So, let's talk about this man that Paul is referring to. You know, it it is interesting that Paul never mentions his name. And I'm sure, and I, I know many of you would probably feel this way, that this man is very thankful that he did not have his name recorded in God's word as being the one who's caused all the trouble and being divisive and doing all these things. Now, many scholars kind of debate whether or not this is the same man from 1 Corinthians uh, in chapter 5 who had the affair with the, with his stepmother. Um, that was one of the big things that Paul was addressing in 1 Corinthians was the sexual immorality. There was a particular man having an affair with his stepmother, and that was something that wasn't even accepted by the culture of the Corinthian people. So they were a very sexually immoral culture, But having an affair with your stepmother would have been very taboo, even in a sexually saturated culture. Um, And so the way that Paul refers to this man in 2 Corinthians is very similar uh, to the way that he refers to the man from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So some people debate that this might be the same person. We don't really know for sure. You know, it wouldn't be surprising that for someone who had already been rebuked by Paul to maybe have a little bit of animosity there in a bone or a fight to pick with him and try to get him back later on. You know, people have been known to be that petty before, so that's that wouldn't be super surprising. But we don't really know for sure. Just kind of interesting speculation. But whoever it was, Paul is encouraging the people of Corinth to accept the man back into the church and forgive him, to comfort him, and to love him. Now, Paul assures them that the wrong the man did was more to them than it was to Paul personally. And Paul didn't want his opponents to be cut off from the church or to be cut off from God. We've got to remember this, okay? This is the heart of Paul. Even after Paul has been wronged, his greatest desire is to see these people restored in the church and restored to God. This is why Paul calls for the man to be brought back into the church so that he would not be discouraged and he wouldn't leave the faith altogether. And the point was is to bring about repentance and and not to execute an eternal judgment. And we have to be really careful about that as churches and as Christians to know that the 
the attitude upon which we treat people like we can say, oh, you know, we punish you and now we've forgiven you. But if we don't welcome you back in, if we don't love you, if we don't, you know, try to make sure that that we acknowledge that you have been restored to good standing and we don't do that in the appropriate way, we could technically be executing eternal punishment because we could discourage someone to the point of causing them to leave the faith because they have no home in the faith. And that's really important. Paul understands the need for every believer to have a church family, to be accepted in, to be forgiven. That's so important. And and as people, we need to understand that as believers. So Probably one of the most things that we as people deal with is what happens after punishment is divvied out. You know, it's, um, I think a lot of times, like we as people just try to ignore it, even with our kids. Like we don't really, we punish our kids, but afterwards some people talk about it, but a lot of people don't. It's kind of like, okay, let's just move on. Let's just try to get back to normal. And so we don't address and we don't really know what to do about it. And, you know, a lot of times, especially with children and with family situations, you can just kind of move on because you're kind of stuck with each other. But the church is very different. And we have to remember we are called by God to administer justice and discipline one another in Christian love. Now that's scriptural. However, what we do after the punishment has been served is just as important, if not more important, than actually holding one another accountable, and disciplining one another. We as people and as Christians, we're really bad at this. And we need to make sure that that we're loving people and trying to encourage them and welcome them back in. Uh, we don't always welcome people back in after punishment has been served, after we've rebuked someone, after we've had to discipline someone. But we should. We should love these people and comfort them. Uh, everybody who's repentant and desires to return to the body of Christ, we should encourage them to do so. We must affirm our love for them so that they don't get discouraged and leave the faith altogether. Because if we discipline them and yet we offer them no love and no encouragement afterward, that's not discipline. That's just execution. We're, we're delivering an execution, an eternal execution to their soul, especially if they leave the faith. So we got to be really careful on that. Now, Paul moves on in verse 9 to talk about how this letter was a test for the Corinthians. Paul knew that a rebuke was useless if the people were unwilling to submit and comply. So Paul's greatest desire is to forgive this man, but he can't do that until the Christians in Corinth forgive them. Um, the, the church as a whole has to realize the need for forgiveness because what takes place after punishment And then forgiveness is the most important part. Um, Paul can't lead that forgiveness because he can't be there all the time to comfort the man and welcome him back into the body um, because the body has refused to accept him. So the people must be willing to forgive and move forward and comfort and love. And in this, Paul can affirm that. Now, we see Paul is communicating that his authority comes from Christ. Like he, He's kind of talking about this once again, that he's called by Christ, he's appointed as an apostle by Christ. His authority is not for the benefit of himself, but it was given to him for the benefit of the Corinthians, uh, of the Christians all over that Paul's ministering to. 
Paul wants to shower them with love and forgiveness. And that's a wonderful thing. And Paul can do that with the authority that Christ has given him. And Paul's constantly communicating that to these people. Now, Paul says this is also that Satan will not outsmart us. And as Paul is including himself in that statement, Paul does not want himself nor any of the Christians in Corinth to be outsmarted by the enemy. Now, now this is a good opportunity um, to throw out uh, an encouragement and a bite, really, to just listen to this past Sunday sermon. Now, if, if you're just listening to the Bible studies and maybe you're not attending our church or maybe you're not listening to our sermons, I think this passage goes good with our sermon from this past Sunday because we talked about loving our enemies and how important that was. And, um, you know, as the Gospels teach us and as Paul and other writers in the epistles in the New Testament, you know, the only way that we can conquer evil is to um, is to overcome evil by doing good. Like, we have to love our enemies. We can't hate our enemies. We can't hate people who oppose us or wrong us. We have to forgive. We have to love. We have to move past us. And, um, you know, to understand that we don't have enemies and people, we have one enemy, and that one enemy is Satan. Satan has been doing the same thing since the very beginning, and, and Paul talks about being familiar with Satan's evil schemes. Satan is a liar and a deceiver, and he's been working on people using the same tactics for thousands of years. It's no different um, than what he used to do. And so we just have to be aware of that, to know that um, Paul's acknowledging Satan's uh, dabbling in all of this, like Satan is causing these problems. He's Sometimes he uses people to accomplish his task, and so we have to be aware of that and understand that we all give in to Satan at times in our lives. And, and so for this man who's caused these problems and caused this division and caused this pain, you know, he allowed Satan to overcome in his life in that moment. Okay, we disciplined him, we punished him, let's welcome him back in, let's encourage him, let's love him so that forgiveness and repentance can be brought back and he can be brought back into the grace of God because we don't want to execute eternal judgment on this man. That's important. Now, verse 12, Paul talks about how his ministry in Troas was successful and Lord had opened the door for great ministry, but he had no peace because Titus had not yet returned with a report from the Corinthians. Now, this is why Paul left to go find Titus in Macedonia because he was concerned for his safety and his health. And, and, you know, this is one of the short passages that kind of gives us insight into the situation and the order of events leading up to 2 Corinthians. It, it, it kind of shows us uh, a little bit of insight into the letter that was between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, and it gives us insight into the events that are leading up to the writing of this letter. All right? So, let's read verses 14 through 17, and we'll finish up this chapter. So, Paul says, But thank God he has made us his captives and continues to lead us along in Christ's triumphal procession. Now, he uses us to spread the knowledge of Christ everywhere like a sweet perfume. Our lives are a Christ-like fragrance rising up to God, but this fragrance is perceived differently by those who are being saved and by those who are perishing. To those who are perishing, we are a dreadful smell of death and doom. 
But to those who are being saved, we are a life-giving perfume, and who is adequate for such a task as this? You see, we are not like the many hucksters who preach for personal profit. We preach the word of God with sincerity and with Christ's authority, knowing that God is watching us. All right? This is probably one of the most beautiful passages that Paul writes in any of his epistles. And this is my personal opinion. I love this the, these uh, four or five verses right here. I think it's four verses. But I love these four verses because Paul talks about how God has made us his captives. Now, um, this is leading into something else we're going to talk about in a second. But, you know, uh, this is unique because... The people of the world and people of Christ perceive things very differently. Um, you know, there are things about Christianity that we as Christians absolutely love, we understand, we welcome gladly in our lives. And those same exact things that we love and cherish, the people of the world see them as being idiotic and repulsive. So this unique thing about um being conquered and being a captive of Christ is unique because if we are captives of God, then, then we're technically property. Um, we have been conquered. We have been claimed. Um, and as people of the world, that seems very repulsive. But as Christians, we see this as, yes, he is our Lord. We belong to him. We serve him. We are his tools. We are his hands and his feet. We do his bidding, and we are glad to do that. Now, a true Christian is going to be submissive to that idea and welcome that idea. But someone of the world may very much resist that teaching and that idea because that doesn't sound fun or uh, something that we would desire in any other aspect in life. So we see this as okay. Now, because we truly love Jesus, we want to belong to God. And we want to be used as God sees fit. We want to be in his will. Paul very much understood that he himself was the tool of Christ. And while this tool had a very specific purpose, the tool could be used for many different things. So it's just according to what God wants to use us for at any given moment in time. You know, Paul was specifically called and gifted to reach the Gentiles. But Paul also suffered a great deal and he was also used to rebuke many Jews and do many different things as he served God throughout his lifetime. So just kind of giving you an example, um, you know, I've had to do a good bit of construction and, and things over the years. Uh, and so you just take something as simple as a hammer. Now, a hammer has a very specific purpose. The primary purpose of a hammer is to drive nails, okay? If we're just talking about carpentry and construction, let's just take a regular hammer. The primary purpose of a hammer is to drive nails. However, you go and you watch any carpenter who has a hammer, they will use that hammer for many different things, uh, really according to what they need in that moment in time. Now, for, for me personally, and I've watched other people, um, a hammer has been used not only to drive nails, but to remove nails. Sometimes uh, it straightens nails. A lot of times uh, a hammer can be used to break things. 
I've used a hammer to beat boards into place, uh, boards that are being stubborn and won't won't doesn't want to necessarily fit where you need them to go. So you beat them into place. I've busted concrete with hammers. Um, there's been all kinds of things that I've used a hammer for, and, and it's not necessarily that the hammer was intended for that purpose, but in that moment I had the hammer when I didn't have another tool to use, and the hammer was very useful it's very much worth its weight in gold because it's it's one of the most useful things and as people we are god's tools now we may be called to very specific things but at any given moment in time we also must be willing to be used however god sees fit in that moment and sometimes we might have to take a little bit of abuse paul suffered greatly for the gospel of jesus christ you know there's been times where uh, if you drive a nail with a hammer, that's what it's made for. Um, it doesn't cause any damage. But there's been times where I have seen people like abuse hammers um, to do different things that it wasn't intended for. But at the moment, it was the only option they had. And we kind of have to be willing to be used by God. So in, in talking about this, you know, Paul Paul says that we are his captives and that God leads us, okay? Paul includes himself in this. God is leading us. And this is also viewed negatively. Like, as people of the world, um, we don't like to be led. We want to be in charge. We want to lead ourselves. But as Christians, we long for God to lead us. We long for him to guide us in our lives. And really, it would be so much easier if God would just like be sitting there whispering in our ear, don't do that, do this. You shouldn't say that. Say this. And like if we had God specifically saying to us constantly what to do, our lives would be so much easier. But it's very important that we as believers are constantly praying and seeking Christ to be led by him. And we have to submit ourselves to him to be led by him because we want to do that. But the world doesn't want to be led by God. So um, it is much easier Life is much easier and simple when God is in control. And when God is leading us, um, it says that we are a part of the triumphal procession of Christ. And it may not seem like it, but we have to remember that we are being led into the eternal glory of God through Christ Jesus and his blood. You know, in the midst of life, we have to give up a lot to serve Christ. We have to sacrifice. And it doesn't seem very glorious. But we have to remember that we are being led into the eternal glory of Christ. That we may not experience the glory and the magnificence now, but that is coming. Now, one thing I do want to share with you as we're getting ready to um, finish up today is that this triumphal procession that Paul is, is talking about is probably uh, this really cool analogy Um of what happened whenever a Roman army was victorious. So the armies of Rome were never allowed to enter the city of Rome. They were never allowed to enter the capital. They always had to stay outside the city. The only time that an army and its generals was ever allowed to enter the city was when an army was uh, victorious and they were invited in to be paraded in front of the people and to be celebrated. And so this triumphal procession that would happen that, that a lot of scholars think that Paul is referring to in this moment and kind of comparing this, making this analogy, is that 
the you know the Senate, the senators, the leaders of Rome would come through. They would have this white bull for a sacrifice. They would bring all these uh, captives from uh, these foreign lands of, that they had conquered, and these armies of so princes, captives, soldiers, and they would parade them in in front of everyone. Then uh, the the general would be brought through. He would be highly celebrated. The army would be coming through, and the army would be chanting basically victory and triumph uh, in front of the crowds. Supposedly, this was one of the most exciting events to ever happen in the city of Rome, and and it was pretty rare. So this might only happen like once in a lifetime for people to have this experience. And as they are showing off this army and they're having this triumphal procession for this army, not only would all these people, these important people be coming through, but then the priest would also be coming through with these fragrant incense burning, getting ready to go offer this sacrifice uh, of this bull, which kind of led the procession. And it's very, um, uh, it's really important to, to just kind of note, like everything that Paul's talking about in this passage, it, it can be identified in what would have actually happened during that Roman procession. So this is the imagery that Paul is communicating to the people that Christ is the ultimate victor. Christ is the one who is being led into glory. We are captives, and we're being led as part of this perception, uh, procession. And our uh, job is to proclaim the good news of Christ. Now, uh, so I want to talk about that. In, in the leading, one of the things that we're called to do as we're being led by God is to spread the knowledge of Christ. I say this all the time. I communicate this to our church you know, I can't say it enough, but one of the callings on every believer's life is to speak about Christ, to to live Him out and to speak Him out to the people around you. If you want to serve God and be led by Him, you need to understand that you are expected to live out Christ to others and to speak out Christ to others. And when you do, it's like a sweet perfume. Now, here's that fragrance that Paul's talking about, that, that everyone in the city of Rome would have been smelling those those sweet-smelling fragrances. So as someone who's communicating the message of the gospel and living it out, you are a sweet-smelling fragrance. Now, here's the problem, okay? Um, when it comes to fragrances, some people uh, may love the way that you smell, and others might be greatly offended by the way that you smell. Uh, some people are very sensitive to, I'm very sensitive to fragrances. So a lot of colognes and perfumes to me are just too strong and I do not like them. Uh, I don't enjoy burning candles in our home because I think they just smell real, they smell too strong. And as a result, I think they smell bad. Um, and so this is the way the people of the world is compared to Christians. Now to Christians, Christians view the, the the life of a Christian and, and the, the things of Christ as a sweet-smelling aroma. We love it. We appreciate it. We know its value, and we understand it. But the people of the world do not. They see it as a stench. It is the smell of death. And we, as Christians, are a constant reminder to the world of death and doom because unless they repent to God and become his captives and allow him to lead their lives and become messengers of the gospel themselves, then there is nothing but death and destruction that awaits them. 
we as Christians are that reminder of the death and destruction. And there's a lot of people in the world who are going to hate us for that. Paul understands this. And this is why he's communicating this to the Corinthian church because there are many people in the congregation that are wavering in their belief system. They're wavering in the teaching of the gospel. They're wavering in their sexual immorality. They're wavering in uh, whether or not they're going to acknowledge Paul or they're acknowledging the super apostles. There's a lot of people who are wavering in their faith and what they're trusting into. And Paul is basically saying that, um, you know, those who remain faithful are the ones who will be saved. Now, you, you have to remember that as Paul is talking about this, Paul always refers to salvation as a, progr- as a progress act rather than an accomplished act. Jesus has already accomplished everything that, that has to be done for us to be saved, for salvation to be made possible. But the decision is a daily decision that we must wrestle with until we cease to live in this world. So so Paul is, is saying for those who are being saved, and, and that's when I say that Paul usually refers to salvation as a progressive act, really, like, you look at most of the things that Paul writes, it says for those of us who are being saved, like, not for those of us who are saved, but for those of us who are being saved. So throughout our life, we are constantly being saved and redeemed in the name of Christ, and our decision to follow him daily is a constant progression of that salvation. So <clears throat> we will we will endure that decision and that struggle until we cease to exist in this world. Now one of the things I love about this passage is that Paul asks the question, who is adequate for this? And 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 the truth is none of us are. We're all unworthy. We're all unworthy to be this fragrance, to be the messengers. None of us deserve it. None of us deserve salvation, much less the privilege of being led in the procession of the glory of Christ or to be messengers of the gospel. But yet God loves us and he leads us and he allows us to be messengers because he loves us and he chooses to do so. This is the way that he's chose to do it. And we have to be acknowledging of that. And in the last verse, Paul once again communicates the sincerity and integrity of his ministry. So he says, I'm not a huckster. I'm not a peddler of the word of God. He's not in it for personal profit. He's not in it for the money. He does not do this because uh, to gain anything. But he does this because he has been chosen. He's been captivated, equipped, and really somewhat cursed with this calling of preaching the word. Paul has suffered a great deal. He will continue to suffer a great deal. He will eventually die for preaching the word of God. He does it with sincerity. He does it only under the authority of Christ. And he acknowledges that God is watching him and that he will have to answer to God. And an account will be given. A reward or punishment will be divvied out for his doings. And he he understands this. He's still communicating the sincerity of his calling and his apostleship to these people. So today as we close out, I just want to ask you this question. How about you? You know, is there a reward or punishment awaiting you as an individual? How serious are you taking the calling of a Christian? How compelled are you 
to allow God to lead you in your life? How compelled are you to share the news of Christ with people around you? That is a question that only you can answer. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this day. God, thank you for these people who are listening. I pray, Lord, you bless them, that you would watch over them and guide them. Help us all to be honest in the estimations of our hearts and our devotions to you. Lord, help us to repent where we need to repent. Help us to commit ourselves in areas that we need to commit ourselves. Lord, help us to serve you, to honor you, to glorify you, to spread the news about you to people around us. God, we love you. Give us the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit to do all the things you've called us to do. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys. Thanks for tuning in for another week. We are so happy that you're a part of the Graham Chapel family and a part of the kingdom of God. Tune in this weekend uh, for on video services on Facebook, YouTube, and podcast. We would love to see you in person, but if not, we'll catch you again online. We love you. We're praying for you. Hope you have a great week.